0: Uh, No one goes through life without uh, trials and really temptations, Billy's had some pretty dramatic ones, most of us won't, but everyone's going to face trials and temptations. We're taking a hard turn here, headed into uh, some scripture. Um, But trials come to everyone, so whether you're walking through enemy territory, or you're going to the grocery store, uh, every human all the time is faced with one kind of trial or temptation or another. There's a pretty well-known verse in Scripture that gets twisted routinely. You'll hear it on the lips of people who've never read it. and it says, uh, "Money is the root of all evil." And you say, "Well, that's not quite the right quote. This is First Timothy 6:10, "For the love of money." is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We're going to have a short journey through part of James 1. You can turn there in your apps or your Bibles. But if you just pause for just a minute and ask yourself, what is my attitude, how do I feel about my life relative to the money I have? Or I don't have, the social standing that's mine, it's high or it's low, Uh, how do I see my life? Am I content where I'm at with the things that I have, with the income that I have, with the, the status, the gifts, the call, whatever that looks like for me, am I content in that? The text we're in this morning majors on how we see wealth and status in regard to our own desires, our own life, and our own sense of things relative to us. It's personal, it's me-focused. How do I see this? Later in James 2, James turns that orientation on its head, and in James 2 he says, how do you look at other people relative to their wealth or their status? And on what basis do you look at someone else and value them or not value them? Wealth and status, again, an issue there. James is going to treat wealth, uh, you know, if you read through this epistle even once or twice, the use of our words and wealth just come up again and again and again. They're big topics for James because they're so practical. James is going to treat wealth again in chapter 5 as a warning to the rich. You know, Don't, don't place your hope in the uncertainty of riches. Last week we saw that God means to turn trials into joy. That is big picture sort of a general view of life for the Christian was, you're going to face trials. We talked about the words the same in the Greek, trials and temptations. And when they hit, whatever they are, whatever they look like, the joy isn't in what we suffer through or get through, but the joy was knowing that God was using those like tools, and he was refining us to make us more like Christ. So the joy in those trials, you know, count it all joy, has to do with what God's doing through difficult circumstances. Well, in James 1, the passage will be in this morning, it goes from the general to the first specific he's going to talk about. So trials and temptations come, count it all joy, because God's going to use them for your benefit. But when he gets to the very first practical singular application of that truth, he deals with money. The first singular issue James deals with in that is money. So we're in James 1, 9 through 12 this morning. We're going to look at temptations we face. The poor and, you know, what you find is the poor and the rich. You can't be too poor to face trials and temptations. You can't be too wealthy to face trials and temptations. It doesn't matter where you're on the spectrum financially or in status. You're going to have trials and temptations regardless and in this in this venue, in this arena of life. I'm going to read James 1, 9 through 12. This is the ESV. If you happen to use a pew Bible, it's right near the back at page 1011. By the way, I had a great time yesterday working in my yard. And my eyes are watering today, and my voice is gravelly, more gravelly than it usually is. I I think I got into some dust that wasn't helpful. Uh, so James, James 1, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, seems contradictory, and the rich, insert the word boast, in his humiliation, sounds contradictory again, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with scorching heat, and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also... Will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits? Twelve is, a, is a, the summary of this short section. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, so related to wealth, status, the way we see ourselves in life. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So James' first specific reality check for our faith has to do with money, not other people's money other people's status but our own. What, how do we see that? And it's interesting here, you remember at verse 2, he said, count it all joy when, when you face trials. Well, verse 9 has a corollary, and here it is boast. So verse 2, count it all joy when you hit a trial. Verse 9, it's boast, so your trial for some is your poverty, your, your lack of wealth. And James says, so your joy in your poverty, is to boast in your exaltation. We'll look at this specifically. And then he's going to tell the wealthy, and your boast, you've got plenty of stuff, and your boast is going to be in your humiliation. We'll fill that out a little bit too. But it's, um, it's the same thought. So joy in trials produces a, an ability to boast in a way that honors God in those same trials, the specific ones that we encounter. So James contrasts the poor and lowly with the rich and exalted, and he says of both of them, you'll have trials and temptations. You'll never be out of that. So if you've been on the low uh, economic ladder rung, have you ever said to yourself, if only I had this much more money, if, if only I made this income, then I would be happy and life would be okay if only I I had this much more. Or if you've been entrusted with more wealth, there's almost always responsibilities that go with that. If that's your setting, have you ever looked back and said, wouldn't it be great if it was back when I was a kid again? Or wouldn't it be great when we had just got married, we had no money, but we loved each other, we started a new life, wasn't life grand, it was simple. No money, life was simple. There's temptations in either direction. All kinds of temptations in either direction, no matter what your standing is. And friends, here's the thing. Both of these temptations are a fool's fool's endeavor because you can't get out from trials and temptations. Money can't buy your way out. Poverty doesn't take you out of it. If you're on planet Earth, trials and temptations come. And it will have to do, one time or another, with wealth, finance, money, the the power that comes with finance and what we can accrue and the social status that gives or doesn't give. No matter our standard of living, we will face trials. And the call for us in our trials of poverty or wealth is to glorify God being content in that situation and then ultimately using whatever he's entrusted us with in a way that honors him ultimately. At the end of the day, we are all stewards. We own nothing. We are servants of Christ. I'll qualify that in a minute. But here on planet Earth, we're stewards of someone else's time, money, energy, focus. So we want to be careful to represent Christ no matter what our standing is. If you look at verse 9, James' call to the lowly is to boast in his exaltation. And that Greek word means to be low in situation, humble, poor, depressed, modest, downcast so if I look at my resources compared to others I might look humble or modest or poor and even when that's the case James says we have cause or reason really call to boast so how are the poor going to boast what do they have to brag in what would give those without social standing without economic means what would give them the ability to boast James doesn't really flesh this out. In fact, the address to the poor is short, isn't it? It's one line. It's a short sentence. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians 7 for a comparison, and then we'll apply it here. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth that not only has lots of diversity in it, but some of the folks there, they're slaves, So you remember back in the Greek and Roman world, slavery was a thing. It was everywhere. In fact, historically, slavery has almost always been with us. And so these Christians have come to faith in Christ, and this is what's going on through their mind. If only I could gain my freedom, I could serve Christ in some better way. If only I wasn't a household slave or an indentured servant, if only my status was changed, I could be a better Christian. And so this goes on, this sort of argumentation with I'm single, I'm married. This is the same thing here. So listen to what he says. He says, were you a bondservant when called? When Christ called you in salvation, were you a servant or a slave? Don't be concerned about it. No worries, he says. Now, he does say, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. If you can get free, that's great. But if you can't, no worries. He said for this reason, he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, as a slave, is a free man in the Lord. So the slave to another human being is actually a free man before Christ. Likewise, he who was free when called, so I'm a free man in this Roman culture, I'm free, he says, well, you are Christ's bondservant or bondslave. So it's the same, it's kind of the same uh, comparison. You're a slave, don't worry about it, you're free in Christ. You're free, well, remember you're Christ's slave. Well, he's bringing, James is bringing that same kind of rationale to, you're in poverty, don't worry about it, you have something to exalt in. You're wealthy, don't boast in it because there's another issue to look at related to your wealth. So for the wealth and the status that don't endure, James 2.5, God chooses the poor to be rich in Christ. So if you say to the poor, exalt, what are they exalting in? It's not their material wealth, is it? Because they don't have it. It's uh, God chooses the poor to be rich in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.28, God primarily chooses the poor and the lonely in salvation. So the exaltation for the poor is not in what they don't have, it's in what they do have, and that's related to Christ. The poorest, most downcast, impoverished Christian in the poorest corner of the earth holds title in Christ to the wealth of the world and beyond. So these are all true of every Christian here. We are sons and daughters of God Almighty. Jesus is our God, Savior, brother, and friend, also our King. We are co heirs with Christ, and the whole cosmos is your home address. Right? Send a letter home, any place in the cosmos that's yours. We will judge angels, we will share Jesus' throne, we will share Christ's glorious appearance. So if I'm a Christian today and I say I just don't have I don't have this, I don't have that. James is saying, well, you actually have quite a bit. Here's the thing. If you, uh, let's just say I'm a parent, I've got a five-year-old son, and I tell junior, um, I want to help you get prepared for the future. So I'm going to open a bank account in your name, and I'm going to add to it. And so when it's time for you to go to college or start a career or get married, whatever, you're going you're to be ready because you're going to have wealth that's been built up in your name. Junior's name is on the bank account, but it's with his father because he's a minor and you've got to have a, an adult as part of that. Junior has no access to that money in the moment, but it's his. And as it grows and compounds over time, he knows he's got more of the wealth coming when he hits that age. And this is the same thing for the impoverished on the earth. You know, I'm glad to live in a time and a place where we have so much material blessing, it's crazy. But guys, people all over the world that are Christians, that Jesus loves just as much as he loves us, have nothing in comparison now. But what do they have? They've got eternal glory and riches in Christ that our minds can't even fathom now. So to those who are poor in the moment... James says, you have much to boast in, you can't see it, you can't put your hands on it right now, but you have much to boast in because of who and what you are in Christ, and what you have in Christ and Christ has in you. So, not in the moment, but what we have coming. That's the thought. And here's the thing, if we think like everybody else on the world, and here and now is all that matters, none of this makes any difference to you, right? It, if I can't, so this is, part of this is living by faith, right? God, you really do feel this way towards me. I really am your child. I really have this future ahead of me, and I'm so thankful. Guys, on any day of the week, if you're saved, everything else is gravy. If you're a Christian, and if you died today, or if you live a hundred years and die, everything else is gravy, because you're living with Christ forever, the source of all life, the creator of the universe, everything else is gravy, if we have Christ. The trial of poverty is temporary in comparison with our exaltation, which is forever. So on this test, so the first specific test or trial is how do I see myself relative to wealth and to the poor to pass the test of faith regarding our low estate is to live joyfully, thankfully in the moment, refusing vain comparisons and giving God glory for all that is ours to come. If I say I don't have much now, I say, but I've got a whole lot coming. And that, that's what my eyes are set on. If you look at verses 10 and 11, this is where he addresses the wealthy Uh, Rich, out of the Greek, there is opulent, wealthy, abounding. Those who have much in material present-day wealth, in case I forget to mention this later, guys, by, by history standards, by world standards today, there's no one here who's not wealthy. By historic standards, by the standards of the world today, there's no one here who's not wealthy. So when we think you may feel poor... But I guarantee, compared to many, many, many billions on the earth, you're rich. So we may see ourselves one way versus the other. The truth is, for most of us, we could probably wear one hat at one stage of our life and another hat at another stage of our life, with little or with much. James tells the rich to boast also. So verse 2 is, count it all joy, count all those trials joy. Verse 9 is, boast about the trials. And so he says to the rich, uh, boast in your humiliation. And you're like, what are you talking about? Boast in your humiliation? So there's a couple ways of understanding this passage, and I'll just mention uh, of the two ways. This comes up again in chapter 5 specifically, where James talks about, really calls down on the, the wealthy. One way to, is to understand James has just shifted gears from poor Christians to rich Christians. Non Christians. That's one option. The other option is to understand that James has switched gears but is still talking to Christians. These are wealthy Christians, and that's my understanding, the better understanding of the text. So, boasting in their humiliation is a way of their saying they're to put no confidence in the temporary wealth of this world but in God. This is kind of a backhanded boast, if you will. So bragging about their humility is a kind of backhanded way of saying they understand the temptation to boast in their temporary early wealth, but they refuse to. And this is the thing he's trying to get the wealthy Christians to see. Uh, How long is your life going to last? Uh, You know, when you look through Scripture, Old and New Testaments, our, our life, our span, you live to 100, live to 120, whatever, and it's a mist, it's a vapor, it's a shadow, it's, it's a blink. It's almost nothing. James' point to the wealthy is this. If you think you're all that because of the wealth you hold now in this short vapor life, you got nothing. So the wealthy are supposed to look at the fact that they've got a very short tenor on earth, they're not here long, and by boasting in their humiliation the shortness of their life, their mortality, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you can't lengthen your life. Sometimes you can't buy yourself back into health. The, the rich are saying by boasting in our humiliation, they say the wealth of the world isn't it. And so even though I'm in charge of some wealth now, I don't peg my hopes on that because it's a fool's hope. It's temporary. If wealth is the only thing that defines my status my well-being, anything along that line, it's a fool's hope because it's short-term. It doesn't last. In fact, the, the language there, he talks about, uh, James says, worldly riches are like a flower that blooms but dies like grass that sprouts up quickly. If you were a Jew, remember this is written to Jews, dispersed out of the land of promise, and James writes that. What, does, anybody, does this recall a passage to anybody? They're, they're thinking Isaiah 40, aren't they? All flesh is grass, you know, all its glory is short-lived, you know, the, the sun rises, the breath of the Lord blows on it, and it's gone. Well, that's what James brings that Isaiah 40 passage into his letter and says, for the wealthy, no matter how much wealth you have, you're going to die, and your wealth is not going with you to heaven. By glorying in the lowest state of their futile, short-lived humanity, in spite of their temporary wealth, they exposed the lie that worldly wealth is of any ultimate significance. One of my favorite passages in Luke's gospel is Luke 12, and Jesus is talking to his disciples, and you remember they'd left whatever living they had to be itinerant preachers with Jesus. They'd left all that behind, and so at different times they said sort of an honest question, Lord, what's in it for us? what well, what do we get out of this uh, and listen to what jesus says in luke 12:32 through 34 he says fear not little flock you little guys you little inconsequential group fear not little flock for it's your father's good pleasure to give you what you just you get the whole thing you get the kingdom Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So if you ask the poor, guys, is it possible for poor people to sin, facing trials and temptations to contentment as Christians? Yes, it is. And, and it's not just relegated to the rich. It looks at our wealth and say, isn't this great, aren't we, grand? The poor can look at wealth and make an idol out of it just as well as the rich can. This goes both ways. But Jesus says to them, where's your heart? Where's your treasure? Where's your treasure? The trial of faith for the rich, at least notably, is to avoid the temptation to think their riches define them can extend their health and wealth past the end date God's already set. The trial is to avoid making worldly wealth into an idol. You guys know that scripture has a ton of things to say about wealth and about money. Old Testament, New Testament, this is not a lesson on all God has to say about wealth. Okay, scripture, uh, the wise man is saving up for trouble in the future. You know, the godly man leaves his grandchildren an inheritance. There's Wealth has a place in Scripture. That's, it's not bad, right? We don't lambast things. Things are amoral. Things are things. It's the human heart that makes idols out of things. So money's not bad. It's what our heart is set on. That's the issue. Listen to this from Paul. This is one of the best passages in the New Testament on the view we should have of money there said, if we have food and clothing, with these will we, we will be content. If we have food, got a meal, and we've got covering from the elements, we have enough to be content. This same um, phrase is used in Hebrews 13, where uh, God says, Jesus says, be content with what you have, for I have said I will never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. So God says you have food and covering and me You have all you need to be content. He says this, but those who desire to be rich, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. They don't pass the reality test. They fall into temptation. It's a snare. Senseless, harmful desires plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10 for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And why is that? It's because it becomes idolatry. It's a God replacement. It's through this craving, he says, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And this is what he says to the rich. Charge them not to be haughty. Don't be proud because you've got stuff. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You know, depending on what the stock market does, On a given day, you may feel really wealthy or you may feel really impoverished. You know, if you went back to 2008, fortunes were lost in the housing bubble crisis, and that's not unusual. He says, uh, the rich are to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for yourselves as a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. True life isn't what we can get here on planet Earth. Life is in Christ, but the real life is yet to come. Uh, James 3 will give a warning regarding becoming teachers in the church because he says teachers have been given more information, more understanding in the scriptures, and because they've been given more, they're responsible for more. When they stand before Christ, Junior, how did you do with what I gave you? The same is true of your and my physical wealth. To whom much is given much is required so to the rich they'll stand before God as a steward of his resources and answer for the much they were given so we want to be careful about saying, I want this and I want this this abundance in wealth because with the abundance comes a level of responsibility that others may not share uh, Jeremiah 9:23 and 24 is a great um, Verse and it's uh, reiterate a little bit. I think it's in First Corinthians. Uh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast in his might, and maybe it's the wealthy man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this that he knows and understands that I am God, that he understands what I value. So we're not looking to boast in riches; we want to boast in God, whether we have much or little. Uh, again, most of us are in the middle class. What we call the middle class. Do you know historically there's almost no middle class? Historically, there's the haves and there's the have nots. That was the norm. If you were an artisan, there were a few other places in which you might have said they were, it looked like our middle class, but that's an historic anomaly. Probably not before the Industrial Revolution or so. Could there be a middle class like we take for granted today? But again, you, if you live in the States, what don't we have materially? We've got we've got far more than enough for us to be content. We have food and covering and vacations and houses and cars and health care and clean water, sewage treatment, I mean on and on and on and on. We are, by any standard, we are wealthy to be sure. Uh, the poor and the wealthy both face trials related to how we see our status in the world and how we choose to honor Christ or don't honor Christ in either our poverty or our wealth. We want to have a care because both poverty and wealth are temporary stations in our way to eternal glory, so we don't want to place too much importance in either direction. Uh, Rudyard Kipling said it this way in his well-known poem, If if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same. I'm triumphant in the moment. It's an imposter. I, I've, I've suffered a disaster. It's temporary. So he says, treat those two imposters just the same. I just want to point out briefly, um, if you look at verse 12, uh, James points out that um, our God, and this is a, a, a verse that will come up, I think, next time. Uh, God is good, and he's really good, and he's generous and he's really generous. And so God's children, Christians on earth who serve God, God is going to reward them. Now, you know, if I was talking to my child and I say, take the trash out, I don't have to say thank you. In fact, Jesus has a parable along this line, I think, in Luke's gospel also. I don't have to thank him for doing what I told him. You remember the household? You contribute. So take the trash out. Junior takes the trash out. Well, there's this sense in which if God gives me much and I'm faithful with much, and God would say, okay, well, you did what you should have done. But he goes beyond that because he wants to reward us for faithfulness. Things done for him, out of love for God, the things done for him, he rewards. So when we take the trash out, he not only says, well, you've done what you should, well done, Junior, and let me take you out for some ice cream or something along that line. James says there's a reward. He calls it here a crown, a crown of life, and scripture talks about this in a number of settings. 2 Timothy 4.8, these are on your study sheet. A crown of righteousness. Who gets the crown of righteousness? Those who have loved his appearing. James 1.12, the crown of life. Who gets the crown of life? Those who love him. 1 Peter 5.4 Who gets the unfading crown of glory? Uh, Those who've served as shepherds, as under-shepherds, out of love for Christ. Who gets these crowns? You remember for them, the Roman, the Greek world into the Roman world, athleticism and athletic competition was a big thing, and so everybody had an image of this, and it's the laurel crown Or the olive crown sometimes too. But if you competed in the race and you won, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9, you would be crowned. And it was this honor and it was this reward. Well, James says God will reward you with a crown of life for successfully negotiating the trials and temptations that face us based on poverty and wealth. And this is not a message on rewards per se, But I would say very briefly, I think rewards, as seen in the New Testament, I believe are an additional ability to know, to understand, and to enjoy God. So the crown of life, Jesus says uh, eternal life is to know you, God the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Life is God. To know God is life. Those who don't know Christ don't have life. They exist, but they don't have Life, So I think it's, it's an ability, it's an additional ability to know, to understand, to comprehend, and enjoy Christ who is life. That raises a question too. Have we trusted Christ? Uh, because we go to church on Sunday does not mean we're a Christian, right? So we say, we try and say almost every Sunday, if you haven't trusted Christ, trust him today. He'll save you forever and the wealth of the cosmos will be yours when you die, no matter what life is like here on earth. You're not only saved from the righteous judgment of God against our sins, but you're saved to pleasures and joys forever. That's a good deal any day. The issue for us in the temptations that tend to grow out of poverty or wealth isn't how much or little we've been given, but the degree of our faithfulness in what God has given us out of our love for God. If Christ is our chief treasure, then any circumstance is a cause for boasting. Poverty, we boast. Wealth, we boast. Anything in between, we boast. With that, if you would, rise, and let's close by reading from Philippians 4 together, one of the better-known passages on sort of that attitude of life we take on our circumstances. Read with me, please. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen.